rape, incest, revenge, intrigue, murder. An old woman, a riddle, a rebellion, a beautiful boy, a corpse swinging in a tree, a great pile of stones, and a father crying. These are all elements of an amazing story that illustrate forgiveness and justice. I want you to take your Bibles and come with me in the Word of God over here to the book of Samuel. Today we plan to answer the big question, can God just forgive? Was the cross a real necessity or was it simply an accident that could have been avoided? Second Samuel chapter 13 and verse 1. And today we're going to read one of the most amazing stories of them all. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Here you have some very wonderful personalities. There is Amnon, the oldest son of David. And then there is Jonathan, the most beautiful man that Israel had ever seen. And his sister, Tamar. Tamar, a beautiful girl. Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister, Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why does the king's son look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to her, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, said the man. The Bible tells a story how this man by the name of Amnon contacted his father, King David, and said, Father, I'm sick and I have to go to bed and I need something to eat. I wish that you would send my sister, that she would come to my quarters and that she would bake with her own hands some bread. And the king says, very well, the girl can go. Let the girl go. And so Tamar, the virgin, goes to see her half-brother, Amnon. And she bakes the bread in a dish. And after she has prepared the bread, Amnon says to the servants, everybody go outside. And so everybody goes outside. And then the man who supposedly is sick says to the beautiful Tamar, would you please come over to this part of the bedroom where it's quiet and please give me something to eat with your own hands. I want you to feed me with your own hands. And she comes over. And as she is feeding the prince, he says, go to bed with me, come to bed with me. You can read the story here. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight, and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon says. And then you come to verse 11. But when he took it to him to eat, 
he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Here is a beautiful girl and she is a virgin. And the man says to her, I want you, I've been longing for you, and I'm going to have you. And she says, no, no, no. And verse 14, but he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of her and bolt the door after her. And so the princess, wearing her richly ornamented robe that virgin princesses used to wear in those days, goes out of the house and the Bible says she had a hand to her head and she was weeping as she went. And Absalom sees her and he says, what's wrong, my sister? Has Amnon been with you? Yes, he says, don't take it to your heart too much. He is your brother, you know. Don't take it to you, your heart. And the Bible says she goes and she lives in the house of this man. Notice, you can read the story. Verse, uh, let me see, verse 20. Her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house a desolate woman. She would never, never be married. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. This is an amazing story. Here is a man who rapes his own sister. And when the king, who was the law giver, hears about it, he's as mad as anything, but he does nothing about it. The king had a responsibility to uphold the law, but the Bible says this was his firstborn, and because he loved Amnon, he did nothing. But in the heart of Absalom, the most beautiful boy that Israel had ever seen, there was a fire burning. The Bible tells us because the king failed to do his judicial duty, Absalom said, what sort of father have I got that he would stand by and see my sister raped? And a fire starts to burn in his heart you see, my friend, injustice breeds resentment. And resentment breeds rebellion. And this is what happens. Please read on in your Bible. Verse 23. Two years later, yes, he went for two years. The fire burned for two years. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep Shearers were at Baal Hazan near the border of, border of Ephraim. He invited all the king's sons to come there. And so Absalom goes to the king and he says, it's shearing time. I want you to come, my father, and bring my brothers. And the king says, you know, my son, if I were to come with all my retinue, I would be a burden to you. And he says, no, I won't come. And then Absalom says, well, at, at the very least, let my brothers come and let my brother Amnon come. He says, why do you want Amnon? It's two years has gone by and there's been no talk in the palace. 
two years, he says, let my brother Amnon come, my father. And so the king says, all right, my boy, go with my blessing. So the Bible says they have a tremendous party. And Absalom says to his men, when I say strike, be strong and strike down Amnon in revenge for my sister. So they're having a party. There's alcohol. Everybody's merry. And then the boy stands up, Absalom, to defend his sister's virtue. And he cries out, strike. His men go out and they strike down Amnon. The message gets to the palace. All the king's sons have been killed by Absalom. The king is weeping and wailing, but then there's a man who comes running with fury. And he comes and he says, it's not as bad as you think it is, my lord. All the king's sons are safe except one, and that is Amnon. And by this time, Absalom has made good his escape. If you read on, please notice verse 37. Absalom fled and went to tell my son of Amohud, the king of Geshur. But King David mourned for his son every day. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. You know why he was consoled? Because he knew he had it coming to him. So the boy is away, the beautiful boy. Absalom, and his heart goes out to this boy. Now there's a general in the land who is the king's general, and his name is Joab. What a story this is. What a story this is. So Job goes to a woman of Tekoa who is a very wise woman. And he says, I want you to do this and this. I want you to go to the king and ask for mercy. And so he hires the wise woman of Tekoa. And she goes to the king and she says, my lord, I'm in peril of my life. What is wrong, my dear? Oh, my lord. My husband is dead, and she is dressed. The Bible says she has no cosmetics. The Bible says she's not wearing any cosmetics. She's dressed as though she's mourning for her husband. She's dressed in black. And she says, my husband has died, and we had two sons. And my sons were out in the field, and they started fighting. And one slew, son slew my other son, and now I have only one son left, and if he dies, my light in Israel will be put out and my husband's name will be blotted out. You see, the avenger of blood is after my only boy. And I'm in peril of my life. And David says, this is evil. Nothing shall be done to your boy. She says, are you absolutely certain, my Lord? Yes. Nothing will happen to your boy. I will guarantee the security of your boy. And then if you come, my friend, to this chapter 14 and verse 11, she said, Then let the king invoke the Lord his God to prevent the avenger blood from adding to the destruction so that my son will not be destroyed. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, Not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Then the woman said, let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. Speak, he replied. The woman said, why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. Like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. And so the wise woman of Tekoa says, My Lord, you are guilty because you have a boy, and your boy has become estranged. And then the woman preaches the gospel. She says, We're like water spill on the ground, and it cannot be recovered. But God devises ways 
so that the banished one can be brought back to the Father's house. This is a prophecy of the gospel. That God devises ways beyond the understanding of human minds whereby the banished boy can be brought back to the father's house. And so the king says, is Job behind this old woman? Yes. Job is behind it. He told me to say these things. And so he calls in Job, he says, go get the boy. The boy comes back to Jerusalem, does this boy. He comes back to Jerusalem, but the father says, I will not see his face. But time goes by, and he sends a message to Job. Job, go and tell my father, I want to see his face. And Job will not talk to this boy. And so this boy says to his servants next door to my farm, Job has got a farm and he's got a lot of corn growing there. Go and burn it down. And so the servants of the boy go and they burn down the cornfield of the general of the king. And so the general comes and he says, what are you doing this for? He says, so I can talk to you. You wouldn't come, but a little bit of fire has got you here. Now go tell my father, I want to see my father. And so Job goes to the father and he says, King David, live forever. You have a boy. His name is Absalom. He's been away from you for a long time. He wants to come back. God devises ways whereby the lost boy can be brought back. And the father says, let him come into my presence. Absalom comes into his presence and falls down on his face before the king. And the king gets up, puts his arms around him and kisses him. The king was a father. And a father loves his boy. And a father loves his girl. But the king is more than what we are. The king was also the judge. The king in Israel was the upholder of the law. And David, my friend, had a tremendous problem. This was his problem. He did not know how to be a father and a judge at the same time. He did not know how to mingle justice and mercy. He should have punished Amnon, but he could not do it because of too much love in his heart. Not too much love, but because he didn't know what to do. And now here is this boy, Absalom, this beautiful boy, and he's killed his brother. And what does he do? He says, well, he is my son. I will just forgive him. But I want you to know today that forgiveness is never cheap. Never forget it. Forgiveness is never cheap. And now Absalom is home. He's in good with the father. He's in Jerusalem. And now he starts to devise. Notice chapter 15. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that he gets justice. Also, when anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the, who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. What an insidious character. 
This boy who had been pardoned by his father when his father should have punished him was now plotting against the king. The king had done everything for the boy, but was this repaid with kindness? Absalom, have you met some of them? I have. Smooth, oily. Such a person says, oh, you are so wonderful. Oh, if only I had the power, then I would see that you get what you need. This is the man who promises everything. An oily, smooth, religious, confidence man, the ultimate fraud. And the Bible tells us that people are so fickle that they love to hear flattering words from the preacher. They love a religion that is a low-cal religion. They love a religion where the preacher says to them, Oh, my wonderful people, you are certainly going to go to heaven. You are the most wonderful people in the world. And such frauds will steal your hearts if you are so foolish as to let them. And the Bible says that this beautiful man with the golden locks stole the hearts of the men of Israel by promising them everything that their hearts could desire. You see, in his heart, he was still burning with revenge for this father. Read on with me, please. He says, Father, I want to go to Hebron because I need to offer a vow to the Lord. Big religious talk. If you notice verse while your servant was living at Geshur and Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. My friend, some of the people you've got to be wary of the most are the people who use religious words the most. And oh, my friend, I want you to know that most of us in this great land are so easily taken in by smart talk. Oh, my Lord, I need to go to Hebron because I'm going to offer a sacrifice with God's wonderful people. And the king says, then go, my son, go with my blessing. Verse 10, then Absalom sent secret messages throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. And if you come down to verse 13, the last part of that verse, and so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. Listen very carefully. Because the king of Israel, King David, had failed to exercise correctly the dual role of kingship with fatherhood, with a loving father, with a just king. Injustice was done, hatred was bred, and now it grows into a rebellion. It was said of Absalom that once a year he had to cut his locks. His locks were so long they weighed many, many pounds that from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet there was no blemish, at least physically, but from the top of his head to the soles of his feet he was morally a stinking carcass because in his heart there was burning the fire of revenge. Listen carefully to this. It's not what you see on the outside that counts. It is what is going on inside the heart of man. Amen. And so the Bible says there comes a great rebellion. They say Absalom is king and all the people just like sheep. Scary, isn't it? All the people of Israel who'd been saying, long live King David, now they're saying, God save King Absalom. 
The Bible tells the story how the king and his family go across the Kidron Valley. They go up the Mount of Olives and the king is bareheaded and he's got no shoes on his feet. He takes everything. He takes his whole family. Though The Bible says he leaves behind ten concubines. So ten concubines he leaves behind to take care of his palace, to do the dusting. The king goes out, and as he goes out, a man comes out and curses him and says, you rotten scoundrel, you're getting what you deserve. And a man says, my lord, will I go over and take off his head? He says, no, I brought this upon myself. Then they come out with the ark of God. The priests come out of the ark of God, and they say, David, will go with you with the ark. He says, no, take the ark back into Jerusalem. If God wants me to come back, I won't need the ark. But if God doesn't want me to come back, the ark is not going to help me. So he goes up the hill weeping. And Absalom comes in and he calls a meeting and he says, what should I do? One of the wisest men in all of Israel says, the first thing you've got to do is to go up on the rooftop and sleep with these ten concubines in the sight of all Israel. And then they'll know you've gone too far. You can't go back. And so in the sight of all Israel, this young upstart, this young rogue goes to the top of the palace and in the sight of all Israel he sleeps with the ten concubines. And then they get together a big army. You can read about it in the Bible. It's a fascinating story. We're going to go after the old man. We're going to kill the old man. But by now the old man has got an army himself. He's building an army. And soon both sides are marching out. Jonathan, no, he's gone. But the father, the old king, thinks of Jonathan, a man he could trust. But whom can he trust now? This is his own boy, the pride of his heart. And the king stands at the gate of this city and as the soldiers pass out, he says to his generals, led by Job, deal kindly with the young man Absalom for my sake. And that day there's a tremendous battle and it takes place not in a field but in a forest. And the Bible says the soldiers of David, the greatest fighting force in the world, take on the forces of this rebel and that day they strike them down and there are 20,000 Israelites killed because a father didn't know how to be a good father and a judge at the same time and in the end of the day here is the boy with the long hair Absalom He's riding on his mule and he's galloping along. He wants to get away. And as he goes through the forest, there is an oak tree and he gets caught up in the oak tree. He's swinging there in the oak tree, alive. And a young soldier comes to Job and he says, Absalom is down there. I saw him. What will we do with him? He says, in the name of God, I know what we'll do with him. Give me three javelins. He takes some of his men And the boy is swinging up in the oak tree. He takes the three javelins, plunges them into the boy's heart. They cut him down. They find a big hole and they throw him into the ground. And they heap up stones. That night, there are 20,000 women who are weeping for their husbands. As the soldiers come back, Soldiers of David, they hear a man crying as they come through the gate. Absalom, my son, my son. Would God I died for you. My son, my son. And the soldiers creep back with, like dogs with their tails between their legs. And Job comes into the king. He says, you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. I tell you, if you don't get out and say something to your man, no one's going to stand with you. The king comes to his senses and he comes and he sits in the gate and he blesses the soldiers as they go by. But in his heart, he's crying, Absalom, 
my son, my son. The cry of a broken man, an indulgent father who did not know how to be a good father and a good judge at the same time. God did a better job. Listen carefully. The Bible says, the wise woman said a word about the gospel. God devises means or ways so that the banished boy can be brought back again. But you just can't bring back the banished boy without, without upholding the law. If you just bring back the banished boy without upholding the law, you're going to have a rebellion on your hands. That's the problem God had. You see, God is a father. God loves his children. He loves Amnon. He loves Tamar. He loves Absalom. He loves Bill. He loves Boris. He loves Debbie. He loves David. He loves Carol. He loves all of us. But he just can't forgive us. Without justice, there are people who say, all God has to do is to say to the human race, I forgive you. This doctrine is taught in a large medical institution down the road here in Southern California. It's called the moral influence theory. It says, God, all he has to do, because he's our loving father, he just says, I forgive you. But that's what David did. And where there is forgiveness without justice, there is rebellion and death. And so here, picture it, here the human race goes astray. There's a great rebellion throughout the universe and it spreads to planet Earth. And the law says the sinner must die. That's what the law says. The sinner's got to die. Now, if God had been David, he would have said, come home, my boy. Don't worry about the law. But God can't do that. God must somehow combine the role of father with the role of lawgiver and judge. And this brings me to the words of the wise woman of Tekoa. Listen to the mystery of the gospel. This is the greatest proof that the Bible is true. God, in the words of the KJV, God doth devise means whereby the banished may be brought back home. How does he do it without having a rebellion as David did? Come with me to Romans chapter 3. The very heart of the New Testament, my friend. Romans chapter 3. I want you, please, to notice this. Oh, this is not a good story. This is a wonderful, wonderful story. And today you're going to see the gospel as you've never seen it before. And by the grace of God, you'll be delivered and saved from low-cal Christianity. Romans chapter 3. I want you to look at me. I want to say to my friends watching on our television stations across North America, 3ABN and all the other ones, I want to say today, the book of Romans is an incomprehensible mystery to the vast majority of people who go to church. USA News and World Report bewails the Diet Coke religion, the locale Christianity, the touched-by-the-angel philosophy. And so people get enough or sufficiently little so that they are permanently immunized against the real. 
I want you to notice these words. When we read them through, that'll be a turnoff to many of you because you'll say the words are difficult. Therefore, I don't want to read anything difficult. And if you don't want to read anything difficult, then my friend, be prepared to be deceived by the Antichrist. Amen. We are living in an age today of brainwashing. I'm amazed as I watch the political process how people are so easily swayed by nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. They're preparing to receive the last great deception. Such a mentality. God doth devise means. Notice it, Romans 3. Verse 21, But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible says we all, we've all sinned, we're all like those people back there in the Old Testament. The Bible says we've all sinned and we continue to fall short of the glory of God. Every person here, including this preacher, we are all sinners. And the Bible says the solution is this, that God provided a way of escape via blood atonement. The margin says a propitiation the mercy seat, and another translation says, thus turning away God's wrath. Moral influence theologians are so low cal that they do not believe in the wrath of God. The Bible teaches the wrath of God. The Bible says that God is angry against sin. And the Bible says that the sinner... Absalom has got to be punished. You can't say, Amnon, forget it. You can't say, Absalom, forget it. You can't say, look, I just like you so much, we're going to forget it. You can't. God says, I've got to be just. Because God is the judge. And the Bible says, it is through the death of Jesus. God devises means. What does this mean when it talks about the death of Jesus justifying God? Because when Christ was on the cross, he was there in my place. And the Bible says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And the Bible says God has made him who, who knew no sin to be sin for us. The sin of the world was placed upon the lawgiver. The lawgiver said, the sinner must suffer the consequences of rebellion. God did not say, this is too hard for me to do. You do it, Jesus. No. The Trinity was, not were, the Trinity was involved in the atoning blood sacrifice because on the cross God was punished for my transgression of his holy law. You try to tell me that forgiveness is cheap. It is not cheap. It costs the death of the lawgiver himself. God devises means whereby the banished can be brought back again. And it's not just by saying, as the king said, hey, forget it, just come on in. That breeds rebellion. And rebellion breeds murder. And murder breeds warfare and hatred. 20,000 graves. 
When God had a rebellion on his hands in the Garden of Eden, if he'd said, well, that's all right, you've just slipped up here. If he'd said that, as some people say, he should have, my friend, there'd never be peace because there's no peace without justice. But on the cross, God himself bore the curse of sin. And so he can say to the repentant sinner, to Absalom or Amnon, when you come in true faith, I justify you, I forgive you. And at the same time, this is not a shrewdy, this is justice because in Christ you have paid the price of your sin. Goodness. What a miracle. That is the gospel. If you truly believe in Christ, he will forgive your sin. And at the same time, he is completely just because he has borne the penalty of your rebellion. God can forgive us and still be just. But listen, not only must the sinner be forgiven, rebels must be turned into loving children. David forgave Absalom, but it didn't change his heart. Forgiveness without a change of heart is a waste of time. Imagine if God said to this race of rebels, I forgive you, come to heaven. What would happen? We would have hell in heaven. The sinner must be so forgiven so the sinner's heart is changed. How does God do it? David failed to do this. Every one of us has failed to do this. But God, my friend, the Father and the Judge, succeeds where everybody else fails. Why? Because as one great theologian said, the cross is the miracle working rod that strikes the hard, stony heart and brings forth the tears of repentance. As Moses came to the rock and struck the rock and the water came out, so the Father came to Christ and struck the Son so that from our hearts will come the tears of repentance. The cross is the miracle working rod that strikes the hard stony heart and brings forth the tears of repentance. There is only one thing that can make us soft inside and bring forth a loving, sweet spirit. It is a response to the love of God who bore our sin himself. Only a person, I say it, my friend, only a person who has experienced this forgiveness can be forgiven. If we cannot forgive it is because we are unforgiven, still hard-hearted rebels. If you say, I will never forgive that person, it is because you are not in the grace of God. You are in a state of damnation. Hard-hearted rebels. The cross changes rebels into willing, loving servants. God devises means far better than David's. This forgiveness is available to all. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes shall not perish but of everlasting life. And thus the Father, with the wisdom of the Trinity, forgives the sinner, upholds the law, and forgives in such a way that the sinner's heart is broken. And the sinner becomes transformed into a loving, 
obedient child of God and the rebellion dies out in the heart. Behold the wonder of the gospel. Therefore, this atoning sacrifice was for all. It was not cheap. It cost the death of God's own Son. It is for all men who will come in true faith knowing that it was their sin that put him on the cross. And when we come knowing that it was our sin that drove him to the tree, when we come in true faith, then God forgives and forgives with justice. And the very act of coming to his cross and seeing the creator crucified for my sin changes the heart. This is the true gospel of God. Therefore, all must come who will. I want you to kneel, please. As you kneel down, I want you to look at me. I want you to respond. Listen carefully. Can God just forgive? In the beginning when Adam and Eve sinned, could he just say, I forgive you? No. He cannot. Why can he not? Because God is just. He must uphold the law. All this stupidity about the law being abolished is locale religion. It's stupid. That is why no mainline church has ever taught that the moral law is abolished. When you hear people talking like that, you know they've watched too many television commercials. They've lost their ability to reason. If there was not a law, there would never have been a cross. And so how does God deal with the problem? Did David deal with it? Yes, but very poorly. When David dealt with the question of forgiveness, what happened? He just forgave. Did he uphold the law? No. What was the consequence? Murder? Rebellion, the loss of his next son, 20,000 graves. So what does the father do? The father says, I must be righteous. That's me, he says. I can't change my law because it's an expression of me. Therefore the father says, I will uphold the law. I will punish the sinner to the nth degree. Does he do so? Does he do so? How? Through Christ. Through Christ. Let me warn every person here. If we do not come to Christ and let him bear our sins, look at me, you know who's going to bear our, our sins? We are. Will the Father punish us for them? Yes. Will there be hell to suffer? Will there be damnation? Absolutely. Either we let Christ take our sins, or we hang on. Either we let him bear them, or we bear them. And remember this. In the locale religion business, a lot of people who say, I come to Christ. But they have no forgiveness towards others. They have no love for God's work. Their lives are basically selfish. 
The Christian church is full of selfish people. I will serve God if it doesn't cost me anything. Don't ask me, God, to do anything because it's not convenient. Those people are rebels. They're rebels in their hearts. Their hearts, the same as Absalom, self, self. The only way that self can die is when I see how much God loved me. And still does. Therefore, remember these words. The cross is the miracle-working rod that strikes the hard, stony heart and brings forth the tears of repentance. That is the true gospel. And thus our Father remains the greatest lover. He saves his rebellious boys and girls by paying the price of their rebellion. And in the very act of paying the price of their rebellion, he breaks their hearts so that they would do anything to please him. Therefore, who today will raise a hand with me, this poor sinner, and say, I come in faith and repentance to Christ who bore my sin. And I ask for mercy and forgiveness. And I pray that as I come, you'll help me to see the greatness of God's love so that the spirit of rebellion will die out in me. My Father, take these upraised hands of these dear people. Help us to know that Calvary costs a tremendous amount. It'll take all eternity to understand it. We thank you that our King David, the Lord Jesus, was far better than the King David of the Old Testament. And that the son of David succeeded where David, the shepherd king, failed miserably. But help us to realize that God has devised means whereby we, whereby we banished ones can come back. And not just by him saying, I forgive you, but by God saying, I will bear your punishment and your sin so I can forgive you. And we accept this forgiveness. We thank you for this gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.